morning, everybody. It is January 19th, 2024, 11 a.m. on the East Coast, much earlier on the West Coast. I am Lisa Salberg, and you're listening to Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. Today, we are going to be talking with Dr. Ahmad Masri from OSHU, lots of initials there, Oregon Health Science Center, long-term HCM physician and expert and more, and somebody I've known for quite some time. So we're going to dive into who he is, how he got to HCM, what's going on in HCM research, and what you should be planning this year for your HCM care. But before we get to our guest, I just want to take a moment to remind you all that we are here to take questions at the end of the podcast. If you're listening live, that's why we give the date and time. If you're listening to a rebroadcast, you can always drop a question in the email to support it for hcm.org, and we'll be happy to answer any of your questions or forward them to our guests. So Tales from the Heart is brought to you through sponsorship from a number of the HCMA sponsors, including Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tenaya Therapeutics, Embrya Pharmaceuticals, and Edgewise. So thank you to our sponsors for making sure that we have the opportunity to bring emerging content to the HCM community. Good morning, Dr. Masri. Good morning. Happy to be here. I would love our viewers to and listeners to learn a little bit about you. Where did you come from? Why HCM? Tell us a little bit about your background. I grew up outside the United States. I grew up in the West Bank, Palestine. And then I went to medical school, then immediately after moved to the United States. And part of, of all of this, I did some research in different settings, typically using imaging to look at the heart structure and function. And one of the most fascinating things that I've thought about was this left ventricular hypertrophy, which many of you are familiar with. It's just thickening of the heart muscle that sometimes can be explained and sometimes cannot. And what fascinated me is that everybody ignored it in a sense that it's not considered necessarily a significant disease on its own even though the heart structure is abnormal. And so like if you go to your cardiologist or to your primary care and you say, I have chest pain, everyone freaks out and starts working up the, the, the chest pain. But you could have essentially on your echocardiogram or any of your imaging, you could have severe left ventricular hypertrophy and no one is paying attention to it. And so that was my entry to this through that. And then I also had some friends who they had in their families significant burden of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and living in the Middle East had no access to any therapies whatsoever. Only, you know, a few of them who had the financial means to travel to Germany and get alcohol septal ablation did that. But aside from that, there was really nothing. And so that grabbed my attention because we're talking about a disease that affects the whole muscle. Yet at the time we we were thinking of mechanical solutions, like we think of aortic stenosis, for example. So all of this converged together, and I ended up going down that path very early on, right after medical school. It wasn't even until cardiology. It was very early on when I started thinking about these issues. Where did you get your training in HCM specifically? The first person that I worked with is Melinda Desai, who's at the Cleveland Clinic, and I did a lot of research with. I learned a lot from I did my internal medicine training there, and then I moved to the University of Pittsburgh, where I worked also with uh, Tim Wong, who's a very fine physician and a thinker. And, you know, over there, I spent some time taking care of patients with HCM, doing more training in imaging and in research and epidemiology statistics and whatnot, with the concept that I want to focus later on on people who have thick hearts. And it wasn't only just HCM, but HCM represent the bulk 
of the thick hearts and it's honestly one of the most fascinating conditions to think about because of the diversity of the patient population as well as the heterogeneity of the disease itself and it, how it presents. It is fascinating when you think about HCM that it's not a thing. It is a very complex maze of potentials and everybody's going to have a different mix of all of the potentials and understanding your individual ones as a patient is complicated enough. And then having physicians who understand how they could all possibly intertwine and how to dissect that. It is a puzzle and a puzzle and a puzzle every day, which is why we have such interesting people in our community as thought leaders, big thinkers. Like you have to think on multiple levels to, to get it all. So I, I love who you trained with. I love the path. Where did we first meet? I got introduced to the HCMA actually very, very early on because I was at the Cleveland Clinic and almost every center who is taking care of a lot of patients with HCM and trying to do a serious job with that as well as continue on that path of taking care of patients is part of the HCMA and is a recognized center of excellence. So that's how I first essentially got introduced to what HCMA is. And then I heard you speak at one of the conferences. I still remember this. You once stopped by a poster of mine. This was like probably 12 years ago, or ACC. And then in Pittsburgh, Tim Wong introduced me further to HCMA as an organization. And I remember also going to the HCM Summit in Boston. And at the time, you had your heart in your hand, and you were giving a talk during the HCM Summit. And so that's where we, the first time we spend a lot of time together, but, you know, I can track it as far as I, when I started training, actually, that you typically go to these, to these meetings and walk around and see what's going on with the HCM science. I remember the poster. I didn't remember it until you brought it up, but I remember the poster and part of the most fun part of going to scientific sessions for me, whether it's AHA, ACC, HRS, HSFA, I love to go to the posters and I like to look at the young scientists and I like to see where they're thinking. There are times where I look at a poster and I'm like, and now you can move on to something other than HCM. Goodbye. <laughs> you know, and you're just like, mm, you don't quite get us. And I remember seeing your poster going, okay, all right, let's see what this one's got. Like he's, he's thinking. And then like, you just kind of were, you were kind of in a lot of spots and I would see you, but you're very quiet when people don't know you. It changes when they get to know you, but you're, you're, you were quiet. And I remember this, this look of determination on your, on your face early on. I'm really happy that your shift went out to Oregon and then you got to work with Steve Heitner and then Steve left us for industry, but we love where he is and he's doing great things and we still get to play with them. But now, you know, you've grown up in HCM and now you're running a very active program. What's the volume of your program now? How many patients do you see a year? That's exactly the path, correct? Uh, everyone asks me, how did you end up in Oregon? And actually, it was primarily to join Steve Heitner, who some of you might know. We've grown a lot in the last five to eight years. That's part of the fruits of collaboration together, as well as the continued education that is happening in the community. Tremendous efforts on all parts, including the HCMA. We average getting about 20 or so referrals a week, sometimes even more. Part of the reason is people who know me know that, you know, I'm, I love what I do. I'm very passionate about it. And, you know, we created an environment where no questions asked, you know, you could send us any patient with left ventricular hypertrophy. 
anyone who you're not sure about, anyone you're having difficulty actually working with. And, you know, you think that, you know, someone else might be able to discuss things with them at a different, in a different way or different approach. It's been very, very busy, but it's the good type of busy because we are able to help a lot of people and it's been fantastic. Let's take a minute before we get into the researchy thing and let's just take a moment to talk about the program. So can you just give us a highlight of who's involved in your program? Who else will patients meet? How does your structure work? We set it up in a way that aligns with the HCMA Center of Excellence concepts and approaches. We have pre-specified people who are taking care of the care of patients. You know, I direct the center and I'm involved in every single referral that comes in, even though sometimes uh, uncommonly you might not see me personally in the clinic. But, you know, we review every single uh, referral that we get. Not everyone, as I said, has HCM. A lot of people have different other conditions or diseases or sometimes misdiagnoses as HCM. So we review every referral. Uh, My nurse coordinator, her name is Katie Fisher. Everybody who lives in this region knows her very well. She is fantastic and takes care of a lot of uh, our patients. Tanya Davalon is our clinic coordinator who also works a lot with patients. We try to make it as such since our patients come from, some of them come from very far away. We try to make it as such that all of their appointments are lined up and all of their imaging tests and exercise and everything is lined up at the same visit. So they get to know our staff actually very intimately and very closely. We also have a fantastic surgeon. His name is Howard Tong. He focuses on myectomy. He's been doing our myectomies for the last 10 years. That's part of our approach. As far as I know that he is uh, one of the few high volume operators uh, as a surgeon or, you know, on the West Coast and in the Pacific North. And then, you know, we have also an electrophysiologist and interventional cardiologist. We also have a genetics cardiomyopathy specialist with us that we work with who also focuses on sarcoidosis. And myself, as you know, I focus on amyloidosis. The whole idea is to provide care for this whole segment of the population, which has left ventricular hypertrophy, and not end up getting someone from very far away. And then we just tell them, oh, I'm sorry, you don't have HCM. Let's send you somewhere else. I I love the global view of left ventricular hypertrophy. It's kind of hard to say, and it's not really um, an ear catcher. We're we're a left ventricular hypertrophy evaluation clinic. Like that, That doesn't sound very easy. So I just like to call it the thick heart stop. So you just you got a thick heart stop here and then proceed to the next step. So let's start thinking more like that as our centers grow. And I love the fact that we're so intertwined for all this time. And the thing that I dreamed about building in 95, not only works to provide care for so many people, but there was a career path for you within this. And I remember trying to sell that concept at early AHAs and ACCs, like, no, you can make a career in HCM and it can be a really interesting career path. And I would try to bring in those young minds early on. Hari Nadu is one of them, actually. He was early on in the concept. I met him at ACC. Matt Martinez, I met at ACC. You, we're, we have all these intertwines because you're already in the center. We've already established the concept. And it evolves and it's going to continue to evolve and get better to serve more people. So I thank you for being a unique part of the HCM history and HCMA's history and sharing with us today kind of how you got to where you are. It makes me feel a little old. I'm I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. Feeling my age a little bit. Like I don't feel like I'm old enough to have watched your whole career develop. Young, young, 
yeah instead of saying all oh, just experienced experience can can replace that <laughs> got some experience honey i got experience oh and by the way you missed one of the elements of your program and i believe one of our one of our people was a special recipient of one of your special uh, projects last week, our transplant. It's a really important part of any HCM program. I'm actually proud that I think we really take good care of our patients, that this is not a frequent or common outcome. A heart transplant is needed when it's needed. And, you know, it's an extremely important part of the care of patients with HCM. But because also of our involvement in the in the research arena, very heavily involved in the research arena, it actually has helped us provide medical care for people who, in my opinion, otherwise would likely have gone down that route as well, just because of debilitation from symptoms and from low cardiac output. She's doing well, and you know we're very excited about what's going to happen down the road and how people feel after a transplant. I mean, you're the expert here, not me. I just get to see them on the other end, but it's really interesting to meet people after they just, you know, spend the first month or two recovering from the operation itself. It's typically a very unique feeling. It is. And we send our best wishes. If you happen to pass by her room in the next couple of days, send our love before she gets discharged. Okay. Research. You like research. You are, you are in it. You got the bug. And uh, I just got a press release yesterday with your name on it about some research. So where is your passion in research in HCM? What should people know? Again, as I said, one of the reasons why I thought about HCM, LVH in general, is our left ventricular hypertrophy as well, is the fact that early on, we really think about these diseases as a mechanical fault, as a mechanical problem. But the disease is really more complex than that. So I did think that even when I started in this process is that there is a lot to learn here. There's a lot more things to do. And that turned out to be true, that there are a lot of new things to learn and a lot of pathways that one can potentially target. So we are heavily involved here. Anyone who comes to our clinic knows that we offer research pathways as part of any treatment pathway. So you get talked to about myectomy, the same way you get talked to about potential for participation in research. That, that requires commitment, that requires taking the time and knowing your stuff, correct? You can't just be hand-waving, will, will we have five different trials? Let me get you to someone to talk to you about them. You have to be able to actually talk to your patients about these issues. The press release is the first ever look into Efficamten's effect on structure and function of the heart muscle on cardiac MRI. Early on, again, you know, we, we believe that patients want to understand what happens to their hearts using detailed imaging. And the best modality that we have for detailed imaging right now is an MRI of the heart. And as such, you know, when we were thinking about all these trials for the myosin inhibitors, including Efficamten, and, and especially Efficamten, we wanted really to do everything possible to convince our patients to be part of such studies. And so we heavily targeted this, and we have very grateful for all of the patients across all centers who are participating but we're going to have a lot of patients with cardiac MRIs over the years that allow us to understand what is happening and what's going on and what is the structural and changes that are induced. Now, this is the first look. We're going to have about 16 patients or so who completed a full year of treatment with Efficampton and who underwent an MRI at baseline and during follow-up. So we'll share these results during the 
Society of Cardiac Magnetic Resonance Imaging meeting next week in London. I'm going to give you Lisa logic here. There's a press release, big conference. You're a known speaker in the space, and they don't make papers like this and put out press releases if there isn't some good news hiding in there. This is how I assess this type of data. I don't know what the data is going to say. I don't know how good, how interesting, whatever. But I suspect it's leaning to the better side. We'll have to let it sit there because it's probably embargoed at this point, isn't it? That is correct. We did have a lot of good news in this space recently. Many of you have heard about a trial that, you know, at OHSU, we were very heavily involved in called Sequoia HCM trial. And in Sequoia, this was the phase three trial that evaluated Efficamptin against placebo, a sugar pill in a way, for patients with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And we just learned after Christmas, which was a good gift for all of us, that the trial is strongly positive. And you know, I'm proud to say that here we were the highest enroller globally. We actually had close okay, no to... brag, brag, brag. I need to brag because it's a reflection of our patients. It's honestly not necessarily bragging about our center or what we do, but it's it's the commitment of our patients that is just amazing. You know, we had almost double the next center in terms of the number of patients willing to participate. And I always tell people, you know, the main reason for our success here is the fact that we have just amazing, amazing patients who are always willing to listen. And even if they don't say yes, it's just they're always willing to listen and they're open-minded and truly want to help everyone, including themselves as well. I'm going to pause there for a second to, to take away the very nice comment that you made and replace it with this thought. You should brag a little bit because it it shows me and it shows the world that if you make clinical trials part of the clinical conversation, this is what I have for you now, this is what might be available, and you include that in your narrative and you get used to it, not just for HCM, other chronic diseases. We all need this help. We all need better clinical trial engagement numbers. If we make it part of the process and your institution has the resources to support the support staff to make those trials happen, you should brag because it's working and you're doing it right. And the model should be one others look at and say, okay, how did they do that? And it is success. And I do want you to brag about it. So there. Yeah, yeah, and no, I agree. And, you know, one thing we always talk about, and we have talked about just this past HFSA, is that it provides us with an avenue to take care of patients that we would never have a- ever been able to take care of. You know, we have patients who are uninsured. We have patients who actually cannot even travel to see us clinically because of the expense of, you know, driving up here or coming up here. And these clinical trials, they appropriately need a treatment. They appropriately get told about the trial in details and they make an informed decision that they want to be part of the trial. But then you use the trial infrastructure to actually bridge these gaps for taking care of patients who are not as fortunate as some others to have tremendous resources to be able to, you know, go to a center of excellence very close to them or, you know, far away from them. And I don't think people think about it this way, honestly. You know, sometimes you are providing a path to somebody that might never have had such a path. You know, some of the earlier cardiac myosin inhibitor trials like Mavicampton, we've had patients who had just a phobia from undergoing open heart surgery, for example. Yeah. And that was a path for them that otherwise they would not have been treated. And so 
these are things that a lot of people don't think about. I think you brought up an excellent point. And I just dropped a link uh, for those who are viewing in YouTube, LinkedIn, or wherever, that we also provide travel stipends. So if patients aren't going to participate in the tr clinical trial or don't qualify, HCMA can help you with up to $600 a year so that you can travel to a center of excellence to receive care. If you think this is a great program and you want to donate to it, you can donate to it. If you are a patient in need, please apply for the, the scholarships. They really can be a life changer just to get that that expert eye and that guidance. Maybe you can be managed remotely after one visit, or maybe you have to come back, but we can help ease that burden of cost if you're not in a clinical trial. But if you are in a clinical trial, there is reimbursement for travel and you can definitely use the ability to get to a center through a clinical trial to establish relationships. And when the trial is over, you may still want to have your care there as well. So there's, there's so many wonderful things about research. I'm going to ask you for your thoughts on a topic, and then I'm probably going to say something a little controversial, but hey, it's me and I do that. Health equity in clinical trials. You come from your part of the world where you were born and raised in culture. I come from mine how do we meld cultures and let everybody know about the importance that representation from all parts of the world, genders, ethnicities, ages are important to include in clinical trials? Can you speak to the importance of why equity is important and any ideas on how we get there? There are a couple of reasons why this is extremely important. The first one is that it is morally the right thing to do. And as a society, we always have to strive to be a representative of all aspects and parts of society. You don't need re more research to tell you that some of the strongest reasons why people don't do well is that either they don't have the resources to, to do well, or they are living in certain areas that in general, the most population doesn't do well. You know, where I grew up, poverty was severe. Access to healthcare is extremely limited. And again, as I mentioned, if you're somebody with HCM, you just don't have any pathway to anything, really. You just take your beta blocker and you go on massive doses and deal with it. There is not even disopyramid. Can you believe it? Like this disopyramid doesn't exist in most jurisdictions around the world. They just essentially are in some, some countries. And so that shaped how I think about this. And I think it's extremely important. The problem is that there is no real push to figure this out. The way that science of clinical trials is set, the way that the rules are set, make everything stacked against participants and against patients. You have to be, you know, the most responsive patient ever. You have to be essentially willing to listen to all the rules. You uh, cannot be fully reimbursed for losing a day of work, for example. This idea of like fair compensation for one day, it's like $80, which is something around $60 to $80 barely like buys you food for that day nowadays all these things you know like if you look at it from a sponsor's perspective they're all afraid from the fda for example and they all want everything to be as clean as possible and all the data to be as good as possible because the fda is really harsh on them when it comes to that that discourages in turn others in recruiting patients who might say, well, listen, you know, I might be able to do 90% of the study visits, but there could be circumstances where, you know, I might not be able to show up because I have to take care of my child or I have to go do certain work to make some money to be able to support my family. And typically the answer is no, sir, 
or no, ma'am, you have to be able to sign up for every single thing you're coming through for. Or for example, you know, like I can give you some simple, simple examples where like we're not allowed sometimes to uh, pay for things before patients essentially show up or before patients actually commit to something. And, you know, sometimes people don't understand that some patients don't even have the means to take an Uber and come to OHSU and pay that themselves. And we have figured out ways around that. We have figured out ways to, to deal with that. And we we go every day trying really to enroll and find patients who are representative of the whole segment of the population, not only people who have access to care, people who are well-educated about the disease and the process, who are the ones who end up being in the trials. Oh, my friend, I could talk on this for like six days straight, but seeing as we've got 30 minutes, I'll keep my comments briefer. I agree with everything that you've said and people are listening. There is a requirement by the federal government through the FDA to improve representation in clinical trials. And sponsors have a um, pretty much a deadline to figure this out. Best way to get movement is say you have to and have, have basically regulatory language on it. So it has to be done and we're having hard conversations. Such things as the, the daily stipend. I mean, it's, it's, it's insulting as somebody who's been in a clinical trial for you to tell me a day of my time is worth X dollars when that's barely minimum wage. And it might not even be minimum wage by the time you calculate out-of-pocket expenses that were incurred, like you might be paying them $3 an hour. And that that's insulting. Like, don't give me, just keep your money at that point. Like, that's insulting. They should be able to compensate well for the amount of effort it is taking of the patient and the concept that what they are doing is helping society as a whole. So... We need, we need to loosen the reins on, on the money a little bit. You don't want undue enticements. You don't want to offer somebody something too big, but you want to cover expenses and say thank you, not insult. So that's part one. Part two, I actually have an idea on the time. And you're going to see me develop this over the next couple of weeks. It's cool. I'm going to make a challenge to our current company sponsors of HCM trials and other trials to do what I'm about to say. If your company offers community service days, redefine what that means and include clinical trial participation as a volunteer activity. If your company doesn't give community service days, add either a community service day policy or add clinical trial days and allow people a little bit of time off to enroll in a study and do the follow-up appointments. Most follow-up appointments can be pretty quick, but the onboarding can take a full day. So if you give two or three days every year or two years to your employees to give back to society at this level, we're going to also open up a pathway for hourly workers to be able to afford to participate in a trial. Make sure that those policies are very clear that any income that they derive through the trial is theirs to keep, and you're going to give them the time off. We can improve access and equity by making simple policy changes. So I'm kind of excited about getting a kind of grassroots movement going on this. 
if some of the big biotechs will jump in with us on this, well, then guess what? Practice what you preach, and then we can go to states and ask them to allow their employees to do this. We can go to large institutions and ask OSHU to change the HR policy. So it's, it could be just done with a policy change and communicating that clinical trials are a form of community service. Like, let's turn it on its head a little bit. So I think we're moving in the right direction, but I came up with a startling observation yesterday. And as I dove deeper in my rabbit hole, dude, I'm scared. <sighs> Health equity cannot be achieved without bodily autonomy for all. You can't make sure that women are going to want to participate in clinical trials when, if they are advised not to get pregnant during the trial and they do, that they can't safely do what needs to be done in their situation, whatever that may be. But the states may have regulation that somebody may not be able to terminate a pregnancy while in a clinical trial. And I did not think about that until yesterday. And I'm afraid for people in certain parts of the country. And how are you going to get these women to join clinical trials when they may not be safe in, in those circumstances? We need bodily autonomy and we need to make decisions for ourselves. And I know some people aren't going to like that, but how do you get to health equity without the concept of bodily autonomy? Help. <laughs> well, I don't know if I can solve this. I think, you know, you put it very well there that a lot of the decisions that get made you know, at the governmental levels and whatnot, don't think of all these complexities, obviously, and they're motivated by different things. And, you know, it is very hard already to be part of any clinical trial or to be part of any research study. And we are unfortunately putting more and more obstacles in, you know, in the path of a lot of people, including women. You know, it's interesting also in HCM that typically it tends to be the majority of people who enroll in clinical trials are women. You know, the split is not 90-10, but it's typically close to 50 to 60 percent of the participants are women. So this is an extremely important point that you bring up. I don't like the problem. I don't like the problem, but it's there and we really need to identify the problem so that we can work towards solutions. I literally lost sleep over this one last night. We'll see what happens as I can, we can evolve answers together maybe. One point I'll make quickly is that, you know, the, the nice thing also about clinical trials is that, you know, it really transcends the geographic location. We have had patients from all around the country come and join uh, different trials. And sometimes, you know, people did not have good experiences at a local site. Even if that includes us, I mean, hopefully nobody has ever not had good experiences with us. But sometimes you might not have good experiences with like a certain place. You could always reach out to another one if you're considering a clinical trial. But also, back to Lisa's point, I think that you are able to choose where you end up going, receiving care, and can evaluate the team, the local policies, and how... We, you get taken care of. I think all of these things are going to be more and more important down the road. One of the issues that we're trying to assist with, you know, we stay in our lane, we do our patient advocacy work, we work with the patients, but we've also gotten involved with clinical trial recruitment because we have access to people who are interested and we want to make those connections. It is, I'm being very transparent here, this is a contractual obligation between the sponsor and HCMA. It's it's not, you know, a general sponsorship of our general work. It's it's a contract for work. 
and we set very strict guidelines on what we're willing to do and what we're not willing to do. So we create an educational opportunity. So we'll do a webinar to launch a, a study. We'll offer a survey-based recruitment tool that you can learn about some of the inclusion, exclusion, time requirements of the trial. And if you as a patient decide that this is something that I'm really interested in, you can choose to either contact one of the sites that are listed yourself, or we can help you facilitate that communication by you authorizing us to send your contact information and your survey responses to a site coordinator who will then reach out to you and set up an appointment. And if there's any problems with communication, you don't hear from them, then we can make a phone call, make sure the connection is made. And then you're in, you're out, you do the trial, you don't do the trial. That's okay. As long as you had that conversation and we help facilitate that communication. It, it's worked before, it's worked again and again. And this past couple of weeks, we had, I would call an amazing success. When I say these numbers, I think Dr. Masri is going to go, whoa. So we launched a webinar in September, October, and we got 42 people to say, hey, I'm interested in the study. Great. But we were waiting for some IRB approval on sending out the survey to people who did not participate in the webinar, our whole list. So that went out two weeks ago. We recruited over 100 eligible participants into a trial in under two weeks. That's impressive. That doesn't happen, people. No. And if we could tool that up even a little bit more, I'm really proud of my team. We did a great job. <laughs> like it all, like all the things that we've been spending all these years creating work so beautifully. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think you should be proud. Th these are things that are not common. I think people think that this, this happens in every space. This doesn't. This really is unique and it's a great opportunity. I think we all should be building on this. So I was in a meeting yesterday with other patient advocacy organizations. And what I just said was highlighted as what is working? What is working is staying current with how people want to be communicated with. Podcasts, webinars, surveys, learn on your own time, short format, be educational, be informative and be empowering. And that changes and I think pharma is seeing that it's changing and FDA is seeing that the world is changing and engagement looks a little different. There's much more transparency in the world. And I think this is our time as patient advocacy organizations. We've been getting ready for this for years and the world is ready for us and we love it. Oh, who's this? Hi. Oh, hi. Fantastic. Love the out of the box thinking and potential solutions for solving health equity problems. This could be a big win for patients. I agree. We need all partners on DAG. And I love that that comment came from our LinkedIn feed because we just started podcasting live on LinkedIn to bring our industry partners into the conversation. And if you want to continue this conversation with me, if you're watching on LinkedIn and you've got a professional perspective here, call us up. Let's bring you on the podcast. Let's talk it out. We're not going to solve problems by sitting in silos and thinking about it ourselves. My epiphany yesterday, it was a gut punch. It was a gut punch and going off script. There's no script for this, but I'm going off script. Um, did, would you expect anything different from me? Not really. So yesterday we had an absolutely wonderful conversation. It was real. It was raw. And it was about racism in the black community and how some patient advocacy organizations, when they are sending out health equity messaging, they're getting hate 
in, the e- in their emails back. They're getting racism. And a lot of these people have never had face-to-face count encounters with racism before because of who they are and the color of their skin. And they're talking about being equal. Somebody's making racist comments back to them. It's horrible. It's horrible. But we were talking about it openly. We were accepting that there's problems that have not been solved, that there are conflicts that are generations old that we have inherited and we must try to heal the best we can. And then I had the concept that without bodily autonomy, there is no health equity, which means we have to talk about another conversation, which is uncomfortable and can be divisive. And I am praying for a time when we can move past that and, and get to understanding each other and respecting each other and understanding we may not make the same decisions with the same information, but allowing everybody to do that. But we need to have these hard conversations. And if we had this very open discussion about racism, I think we can have conversations about bodily autonomy. And they're hard. And I don't have the answers. But I'm hoping that some of my really smart friends can get their really smart friends and we could get everybody together and we can solve a problem. I know. It's a little ambitious. Yeah, but you got to start somewhere. You do. You do. So what else should patients know about HCM from your perspective when they think about planning their year ahead? That's a great question. I think, you know, in general, um, obviously, you know, it depends on where you are in the disease process and how our things for you and your history, your family's history. But in general, you know, we think about a couple of things. One, have you been stable or have things been, you know, changing lately for you, how you feel, how things are happening. In general, we like to see patients at least once a year, sometimes more frequently if they have disease or if they have symptoms. You have to remember that there are certain types of workup and things that get done regularly. And so it's not just that you have to wait for you you to become short of breath or having chest pain or having leg swelling to be seeing your physician or to be following up at your HCM center. So I think that's one of the most important things. One of the reasons why we see patients the way we see them is that we want to pick up on clues and on small problems before they actually manifest into bigger problems. So that's one. The second more important aspect is, you know, uh, think yourself how about how you feel. And, you know, even if others dismiss sometimes, you know, your complaints or dismiss essentially how you sometimes project that you feel, a reminder that HCM is, you know, a chronic disease that restricts your ability to do the activities of daily living you enjoy doing. And that could be including significant amount of exercise. And as such, we always, every single year, every single time we see a patient, we reassess how they're feeling and we see if, is this the time? to consider something else? Is this the time to consider, you know, um, either a treatment or a clinical trial or another pathway of, of doing something here? And then finally, something that almost everyone forgets who don't really focus on the disease is that the risks are dynamic. And so if, if you have a life-changing event, if you somebody in your family unfortunately suffered something or something developed, these are all the things that you have to keep in mind as you think about your disease and discuss with your doctors as well. Sometimes we get questions about, I'll call them the bigger tests, like MRIs and genetic testing, 
What is the frequency somebody should revisit an MRI? And what is the frequency somebody who got a VUS or no mutation identified genetic test? How often should they be going back to check on those, those two items? Yeah, there is no consensus on 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 the frequency. You know, we we always think about the patients. I I always put myself in the patient's shoes when I'm trying to do stuff. And you know, for MRI, if you don't have a defibrillator already implanted, I think based on the data we have right now, a sweet spot is about once every four to five years, unless you've had a major event happen or something major developed during this time. But if everything is okay and you're cruising along and everything is the same, then I think once every four to five years, up to a certain age, obviously, I think that really is is, is beneficial. We have seen patients who accelerate with their disease, and we have seen patients who absolutely have zero change over many, many years. And that all is reassuring sometimes, as well as sometimes is an indication to consider doing something and to rethink how someone essentially is being evaluated and worked up. For genetic testing and evaluation, honestly, it's it's a little bit more complex because it has to do with what type of testing they have gotten in the past, when was it done exactly, which was the company or the third party that actually performed the testing. This is important. Do we even have the results or it's just hand-waving? I can tell you stories of people who told me, oh, my test was inconclusive, and we ended up finding that they actually even have not even HCM, they have Fabry disease. And they were told their tests were inconclusive and never been put on therapy. And oh. so um, so it's very it can get very complicated. But as a general rule of thumb for us, if someone got evaluated prior to 2015 or so, and we have access to their data, to their report, and to what genes were uh, evaluated at the time, very frequently you end up actually considering repeating genetic testing. If someone comes with family history and confirmed family families with disease and their genetic testing is reportedly negative or comes back as negative, those are patients that we think really deeply about and consider what else could be there. I'm going to throw a completely random question in because it's been coming up a little bit more often. So we have those people with HCM who may not be great clinical trial participants because disease is too progressed. When should somebody who has progressive symptoms related to their HCM consider doing a right heart catheterization? Anyone who has low function of the heart muscle, even if they tell me I feel good, we almost always do a CPET, which is a cardiopulmonary exercise test to evaluate their function and their heart efficiency. And then we do also a right heart cath. The reason not to push treatments on anyone, but we also need to stratify how patients are within that strata. The other one, when when someone shows up and says, I am unhappy, I am miserable, I don't feel good. We have seen this over and over. Patients show up, they say, I don't feel good. Someone looks at the echo, the echo looks fine, and they don't actually get worked up. Again, part of being in the HCM space is that it humbles you to listen to patients more than at least one is used to practicing general medicine. And, you know, if you listen to the patients and they're telling you that there are circumstances where they actually are miserable, uh, and we've had recent examples of people who underwent heart transplant because, you know, not just because they're not feeling good, but was just very vague complaint of just not feeling good. They can't do anything. They just feel no energy whatsoever. And then, you know, their EFs were 
were okay, like 50% or whatever, like borderline range where that can be dismissed if it's like 55% in some of them. But really, when you do the further workup, they are in typically very poor state and they require further intervention. So this is an extremely important point to bring up to patients. Thanks for answering it. It's a good problem and a bad problem to have. Nobody wants to see anybody in advanced heart failure, but I think we're getting better at recognizing the earlier subtle signs of advanced heart failure, and when we can help start to bridge people to the concept of transplant. Our ultimate goal is that no more transplants will ever be needed in HCM. But for the next 10 years or so, I think those individuals who aren't going to be helped by the the newer therapies, we're going to see a little bump, I think, because we're getting better at managing them. We went from 1% of the UNOS registry to somewhere around 4% in the past 15 years. Somebody called it a new Lisa factor because I had a transplant that other people are having transplants. But there is some truth to that. I was very visible in my process and my journey. And I didn't even appreciate that end of HCM until I lived it myself. So Brandy's good for lots of things. And the opportunity to continue to educate people on HCM is certainly one of them. And I want to make sure those who need to get to transplant get there. Again, less than 5% of our population needs this but it's an important 5%, ultimate goal of keeping families whole. So I have some announcements as we're wrapping up this this wonderful podcast. February 15th, the HCMA will be doing its very first on our own legislative briefing at Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. We're going straight to Mecca, people. We're We're going to D.C., And in our briefing, we are going to have a call to action that we start looking at family heart health history, not only in the well-child examination, which are state-based initiatives, because there's really nothing in the federal space to legislate that, but we can ask on both ends of the age continuum. And we want the welcome to Medicare examination to have the same screening questions as the well-child examination, because genetic family heart health history is continuum throughout the ages. So if we can get to the welcome to Medicare exam, we find grandma and grandpa. If we're doing the well-child exams, we get the kids, and then we can have the conversation with those of middle age in between. So we want to get to diagnosis sooner. We want to find not only HCM and DCM and ARBC, we want to find amyloidosis, sarcoidosis. We want to get in front of things before they get too bad. And if we can get there when somebody's doing that welcome to Medicare exam, we can lower healthcare costs by somebody slowly getting into heart problems and becoming frequent flyers in the ER and using healthcare services that might be better used elsewhere. We can be more specific and be more personalized if we ask the right questions. So that is one of our asks. There are going to be a couple of other things we try to discuss, but if you're in the DC area and you would like to join us, there'll be an enrollment form on our website. We hope that If you're in the area, you come on down. If you're a physician and you want to fly on in and join us on the Hill, come on and join us. Let us know you're coming. We are going to have some presenters. We're going to share some family stories of success and failure and explain to Congress and the Senate why they need to start knowing about HCM and thick heart muscle disorders and genetic heart muscle disorders. February 28th is HCM Awareness Day around the country. So we've always picked the last Wednesday of February. And this year, it's not the last day. Warning, warning, it's a leap year. There's an extra day. You're all going to get confused for a day or two. But uh, the 28th is 
HCM Awareness Day, we're going to be doing five online legislative briefings on the state level. And then we're going to have an event at night where we give an update on things that are going on here at the HCMA and projects that you can get involved with and how you can get involved to move state legislation. So it's a busy year ahead for the HCMA and lots of exciting things happening. And it's certainly going to take a village and we're happy to have all of you as part of our village. So as we end our hour together, Ahmad, what what are your final thoughts about HCM 2024? Where are we going? Well, first of all, to just build up on what you said, amazing amount of work that you're doing. 2024 looks already promising year for a lot of change. A lot of advances are happening in HCM. We continue to push along multiple pathways there and multiple essentially fronts. I am very excited for 2024. We have a lot of trials either closing to enrollment or reading out. We have a lot of a new science happening and you know, new push to focus on addressing the underlying genetic basis of, of certain types within HCM. So I am very excited about what's going to come up and continued collaboration with you, with the HCMA, as well as with our colleagues and centers across the country. This is part of the reason why it's fun being in, in this space, taking care of patients and working with professionals who do care about what happens in this space and what happens to patients. I think those are great sentiments for 2024. It's been really a pleasure having you on the podcast. So thank you to all of our viewers. And again, thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to Ross Hadley, who's been dropping links. And Joey Graham, who's going to be our producer on this. Thank you to everybody. And join us next time on Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA. HCMA.